0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages Warren Faber presented on interpreting the gospel from Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was dean, executive vice president, and professor emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Now, here is Warren Faber on Today in the Word radio. Interpreting types. What
1: you need is a Bible and a notebook and a pen and we're going to talk about interpreting types. Just as we began to do pretty well in the interpretation of Scripture, we're made aware of the fact that some texts not only convey a simple meaning, but also a hidden or typical meaning. And I can remember as a boy when the preacher would be preaching from the Psalms or someone else, somewhere else, and he would say, This? is a type of Jesus. And I'd say, how does he get that? And maybe some of you have wondered how people get that. For some people, everything seems to be type. And you say, I wonder how they do that. We want to learn how to do that. We want to also learn how not to do it and when not to do it. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about types and then we're going to interpret some types. And so let me talk about them first. First of all, by suggesting that we do have types in the Bible. That every time you read in the New Testament that this was a figure or this was an example or that this was a type or that this was a shadow of things to come, we're talking about the fact that there are types. In the Bible, types are really the carbon copies. The original is always in heaven. You see the carbon copies here on earth, and uh, they are just sort of pointers of what is eternal and what is significant and what is important. In the Bible, as you take a look at types, you find out that persons are typical. Now, they're not typical as persons. They're typical because of some character or some relationship which they sustain to the history of redemption. Now, Adam is a type. You say, what is he a type of? Well, Adam was the head of the human race. And when God began the race over again, he sent his son into the world, and they called Jesus the second Adam. The last Adam, we'll not need another because the race gets a good start in Jesus, but you'll want to look up Romans 5.14. Abraham is also a type and when you think of Abraham, you say, "What's he a type of?" Well, Abraham is a type of the believer. God called Abram out, and Abram believed God, and he becomes the father of all believers. And you'll want to write down a text: Romans fourteen, Romans four, verse ten, and eleven. Elijah becomes a type too. And men look for an Elijah yet to come. And Jesus said, why, he's already come. And he was a type of John the Baptist because John served in the spirit and power of ministry that Elijah had manifested. David is a type. David's a type because he's a king of the great king who would rule of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Persons are typical. Institutions are also typical. And when we talk about the institutions, we're talking about the sacrifices in the Old Testament. We're talking about the Sabbath day. We're talking about the Passover. Perhaps you remember some of these verses, but when you're thinking of sacrifice being typical, pointing forward to something else, you ought to jot down a verse in Peter. First Peter, chapter one, and verse 19. First Peter, chapter one, verse 19. I'll read 18 for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. And when somebody took a lamb and offered it on the altar as a sacrifice for their sins. It was pointing forward to the time when Jesus would come, a lamb without spot and blemish to be sacrificed for our sins. So you could say that the offerings, the killing of the lamb, the choosing of a perfect lamb was a type of the lamb who was to come. John said, behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The Sabbath was a type of rest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. The Passover was a type, again, of Jesus, who was our Passover, slain for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Persons are typical. Institutions are typical. Offices are typical. And as you read the Bible, you realize that there are three basic offices that are described in the Old Testament. There's the office of prophet, and the office of priest, and the office of king. And Moses was a type of a prophet who was yet to come, Jesus. The prophets were messengers of God. And uh, you might want to jot down Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Aaron was chosen to be the high priest. It was only the high priest who entered on the day of atonement with the blood offering and uh, entered into the Holy of Holies. And Aaron is a type of Jesus who entered into heaven itself for us, having shed his own blood. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. And kingship in Israel is always uh, typical. Psalm 2. Verse six, offices are typical and then events are typical. We read in first Corinthians chapter 10, verses six and 11, that as the Hebrew people wandered through the wilderness, many things happened to them that were typical. They were given manna and Jesus is pointed out as the bread that comes from heaven. They received water from the rock and Jesus gives living water. And the conquest of Canaan was a sort of a picture of how we can be victorious in the Christian life, and so all of these events are typical. Actions are typical. Remember how Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And. that's found in John 3, 14 through 16. Things are also typical. The tabernacle was a type, a type of the incarnation of Jesus, John 1, verse 14. Incense is always a type, a type of prayer, Revelation 5, 8. The curtains of the tabernacle were a type of access into heaven, Hebrews 9, 11. 12 and 24. Now, we've just been saying the reason we believe in types is because the Bible tells us there are types. Now, the question, of course, is how can there be types? We've been talking about them, but how can we really come to grips with this business of this is typical? And I want to talk just for a few moments about the basis of typical meaning. Now we started out as we began to talk about interpreting the Bible by saying something very important. We said that only the who determines the meaning, the author, only the author determines the meaning. Now that's also true with types. You and I don't have any right to go to the Bible and say, this is a type, that's a type, this is a type, that's a type. Either they're types or they're not types, but you and I don't make them types. What is the basis of types? Well, first of all, God is in sovereign control of history because he does certain things in history in a certain way. He can do it in such a way that it will be typical of something that he's going to do later. And he knows what he's doing. And that's why things can be types, because he's a very consistent God who knows what he's doing and who gives us some intimation of things that are yet to be. Now, a second thing that is important is that all types rest upon dispensational truth. That is, God works differently from one age into the next. Now there's a unity in what he does, or it couldn't be typical. If people weren't saved by faith in the Old Testament, Abraham couldn't be a type of all believers. But there's a difference, and there's an advance in this whole plan of God. Things get better and better as you go along. There's a difference. Types rest on the difference. There's a basic unity. Types rest on a basic unity. Same God, people are the same, and people are all saved by God's grace through faith. And uh, there's progress in God's plan of redemption. There's a chart in your workbook on page 95, but I'll just tell you what it says, and you can look at it later. But it shows how God starts out with a world and, Now there's a paradise in that world that is lost to man. Then God goes and he calls the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I draw that circle small because God had a people then, but he just chose a very few and they were working uh, for him and carrying out his wishes. Then he chose a whole nation and I draw that circle a little larger, national Israel. And then in the plan of God, He brings His church into existence, and I draw that circle a little bigger because that's His international church. And it goes out into all the world. And then I draw a bigger circle yet, and I talk about a universal kingdom because it's not only going to embrace Israel, but all of the nations of the world, and Jesus is going to reign, and it's going to be glorious. And then the biggest circle of them all, the new heaven and the new earth, because God is going to complete his redemption. Now, you can take your stand and you can look at something that happened in one of those prior times, one of those smaller circles, and you can say that's typical of something that's yet to be. The basis of typical meaning is that you have a sovereign God who is just worked in history in such a way that some of the things that he did in days gone by are typical of some of the things yet to be. Now, a few guidelines in interpreting types. First of all, start by noting the inspired interpretation of the New Testament writers. And in Romans and in Corinthians and in the book of Hebrews, you'll see types explained for you. The men will talk about figures, examples, types, shadows. Every time you see those words say, he's talking about types. And uh, there are some men who say the only types in the Bible are those that are interpreted in the Bible. Well, that's a safe position to take. You never have any problem then. Uh, But I rather think that there are many that were just not explored we have to appreciate the advantage of perspective. If you never stop to think about that, the only people that talk about types are people who stand in the advantageous place that you and I stand. We stand in the church age and we look back. And as we look back, we say way back there, something happened that was, that was a type of what I now experience. And so you have the advantage of perspective. You're looking back at something and you now recognize that it was typical. And you can look back and I can look back and we can see in the Old Testament things that were typical of things that we enjoy. I think in a limited way we can look at what we are enjoying and see some of this as typical of things that are yet future And occasionally, God gives us just a little glimpse and a little insight into that, and it's a very wonderful thing. Now, one of the most important things, as you do types, is to ask, what did that event or that action or that institution mean for the people of that day? That's where you're going to have to start you have to know what it meant to the people of that day before you can say it's a type of anything. That's where you start. Uh, then if there's something similar in the New Testament to that, you can, uh, you can start working types. Now, if you'll draw three circles, if you do not have a workbook, and if you have a workbook, why you can just fill in the three circles. We'll start out by way of an illustration and we'll talk about a type. There's a tabernacle, it's a tent of skins, that's all. And uh, it's a type. We're told in in the Bible that it's a type. Now, on the far circle, we've got three circles that intersect each other, but in the far circle, we're going to put the heavenly reality. God dwells with men Now he dwells with men just the way they live. Men were living in a tent and God says, I'm willing to live with you and live in a tent. Now that was a type of God moving in and living with us like we lived. And do you remember what it says in John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us and god said i'll live just like you live and he sent his son to live in a body That's beautiful however that's not the, that's not the full that's not the full fulfillment of that when you get to the book of revelation you find john looking and as he looked at, into the new heaven in the new jerusalem he didn't see any Temple. And you say, Isn't that too bad? But there isn't any temple because it's all temple. And he says, The Lord God and the Lamb are the temple of it. And you see what God is going to do? He's going to dwell just like you dwell and I dwell, but he's going to take us right up into his own abode and he's going to dwell with us. And way back there, In the Old Testament times, when God moved in and lived with His people in a tent, He was promising them that they were going to live together, enjoy the same kind of circumstances in life, and He was willing to condescend so that they might be with Him and might be like Him. That's a tremendous thing. Now, that's what typology is all about. And I think another thing that you ought to remember is that no person or institution or office or event or action or thing should ever be termed a type unless the Bible clearly teaches that truth which you are expounding. We're not going to, we're not going to find other sources of truth in types than what we have clearly demonstrated in the Bible. All right, now we're ready to do it. You see, I'm not ready. Well, stay with us and we'll try it and we'll see if we can interpret some types. We don't read very far in the Bible before we read of paradise and a tree of life. What did that mean to Adam and to Eve to be in paradise? Well, it meant a perfect environment, didn't it? And it meant God's presence, didn't it? When Jesus said to the thief who was dying on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, what was he telling him? You're going to be in a perfect environment and you're going to be in God's presence. Don't be afraid. Death just ushers you in to a perfect environment in God's presence, and Paul teaches that, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And of course, we read in the new heaven and the new earth of paradise again, and trees of life, perfect environment, God's presence. So the Garden of Eden was typical of those things that we are yet to enjoy and will enjoy. Now, we take a look at the people who were slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. What did it mean to be in bondage in Egypt? Well, you can write in that in that prior dispensation, the meaning to them was to be in slavery. And we read in the New Testament that people are in slavery and they need to be redeemed. And we say we're free citizens, we're free men. But the Bible says, no, you are a slave. You're a slave if sin is dominating your life, and it's typical, the bondage in Egypt is typical of the slavery of sin, which many, many of us in, not enjoy, but experience. In fact, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we can see bondage in Egypt as typical of an enslaved world, enslaved by Satan, enslaved to sin, needing to be redeemed, needing to be delivered. So deliverance from Egypt then becomes a type. The enemies were defeated and God's people were delivered by blood and by power. And it's typical of how you and I can be delivered from the bondage of sin by the precious blood of Jesus and by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Well, isn't that a wonderful thing? The blood sacrifices were all typical too. When one went to, a, to the tabernacle and offered uh, sacrifices for sins, the uh, sacrifices, the sin offerings covered and blotted out or expiated sin, satisfied God, and we realize this was always done by a substitutionary death. An animal died in your stead. Well, this is typical, of course, of how Jesus became our sacrifice, providing uh, an atonement for our sins. And you can find many verses that talk about this. 1 Peter 1, Verses two and 19, Hebrews 10, 19, just a vast host of verses. Now, let me just mention the sacrificial offerings because they taught the Hebrew people two things. They taught them how to obtain fellowship with God and how to maintain fellowship with God. Those were the two things that the the offerings taught And in the New Testament, we realize that we never can obtain fellowship with God by offering a sin offering. There's just one offering. Jesus is the Lamb of God offered to take away the sin of the world. But there are some sacrifices that are typical of the offerings that we can offer to maintain fellowship with the Lord. Do you remember how in Romans 12 we're told to offer our bodies a living sacrifice? You can't maintain fellowship with God without offering your body a sacrifice to Him. He expects that. Do you m- remember how it says that we can offer our prayers as sacrifices and how we can offer praise as sacrifice? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Well, that gives you a little idea of how types work. Now I want to give you one that's a little different. And you listen to it and see what you want to do with it. There's a story in the Old Testament. It's in Judges chapter 16. It's a story of Samson. Samson decides one day that he's going to go into a town. And there he's going in and he is going to visit a prostitute. They hear that he's there, and so they say, shut the gates, and they shut the gates. And uh, after a little bit, Samson decides to leave, and the gates are in the way. So he just rips them up, picks them up, sets them upon a hill. Now, supposing I tell you that that's typical of Jesus, who went into the city of this world and triumphed over death, even though he was locked in for three days, and uh, now he's the victor. How would you like that? Sound like a good type? Something that bothers you about that, isn't there? bothers me, too. That isn't what that meant to the people of that day. They said, you dumbbell, why did you go into that city in the first place? What you were doing was wrong. And it's only by God's grace and goodness that you got out of it. And it's just one of those sad stories and commentaries about the fact that a man who was so blessed with abilities and strength by God was continuously stumbling along and missing the mark and doing things that he shouldn't do. And Samson, the life of Samson, is a, is a life that's just marred by so many of those incidents. And Samson just, you know, ends up his life uh, asking God, Oh, give me strength one more time, he says. And he puts his arm around the pillars and takes them down and he dies. What a sad story. And I think Samson life illustrates to us that you can't squander God's gifts. And I would say this isn't a type because there's something very incongruous to, about it. It didn't mean anything typical to the people of that day. And so I would throw that one out and I would say, make sure they fit. Find out what they meant to the readers before you work on them. Now, one of the questions that we had when we started this course, an interpretation was, how can I know that my interpretation is the right one? How can I know that what I believe is true? I hear you speak and you say some things that are different than what my pastor says. How can I know who's right, you or my pastor, you say to me? And I say we're going to have to learn how to test out interpretations of Scripture. So on page 100 in your workbook, if you have a workbook, we talk about testing the validity of your interpretation. And I want to remind you now, as we've been working together on how to interpret the Bible, that my premise is that any Christian who can read can learn to understand the Bible. And I want to encourage you to read it every day, prayerfully, reflectively, with expectation that God is going to speak to you and you're going to understand something from this word that you're reading. Now, there are always going to be problems. Always going to be problems. And you're going to, upon occasion, be confronted with two different interpretations. and. I want to give you a few suggestions on how to handle this matter of differences in interpretation. First of all, you ought to know that all Bible-believing Christians are in general agreement in broad areas of doctrine. That's wonderful to know, isn't it? We don't have any disagreement on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. There's some other areas. Now, much of our disagreement lies in the matter of emphasis. People are emphasizing a truth and ignoring many other truths in the Bible. Sometimes we're only dealing with an aspect of truth. I'm always reminded of the story of the blind man who, for the first time, meet an elephant. There were five of them, and they each shared their description of the elephant. One of them who grasped the elephant by the trunk said, I perceive that an elephant is like a hose. And another who put his hands flat against the side of the elephant said, I perceive an elephant is like a wall. And one of them met the elephant, had uh, the elephant's leg and put his arms around and said, I perceive an elephant is like a tree. Another felt his ear and said, I perceive the elephant is like a palm leaf. And another, catching hold of his tail said, I perceive the elephant is like a rope. Well, some of us are doing that with a Bible. We're just getting a little bit of the truth and uh, what we got is good, but we just don't all put it together. And uh, that can be a problem. Sometimes disagreement comes because we fail to distinguish between meaning and implication and application of a text. By all means, start out by saying, what does the author mean? So many discussions as I listen to them and people are quoting scripture involve quoting scripture in a way that you can twist it to use it for your own cause. What does the author mean? As soon as we know what Paul means and really what ultimately God means, then we can use this scripture in a meaningful way. So distinguish between meaning and implication and application of the text. Now on some occasions we're going to meet problems. And when you do, I think you ought to ask some questions. and I think these are legitimate questions to ask. You ask this question, Is this man's theological position true to the word of God? I'm not going to listen to a man who in many, many ways and on many occasions has said things that do not square with scripture. I'm not even going to bother with that sort of thing. I'm going to ask another question because I think it is important. And while it is possible to hold truth in the mind and deny it in the life, that is not the usual mark of the man of God. And I think you can ask about any man of God who is involved in teaching and promulgating his views, is this man living a godly and consistent Christian life? I've heard men teach about the grace of God whose primary motivation was to advocate a life of sin. What a terrible and tragic thing. The apostle Paul was shocked with that. He said, what? Continue in sin that grace may abound? May it get it oh, he says. May it not be. God forbid. And so ask whether this is the case. And then ask yourself when you're listening to someone, Does he seem to understand the whole counsel of God? The apostle Paul said to those elders, he said, I want you to teach people the whole counsel of God. That's important. And if this view is being expressed by a godly man whose teaching is true to the Bible and he disagrees with you, then you've got trouble and we're going to see if we can get a hold of that and how to solve it. Now there's some words that I want to give to you uh, because these are hard, difficult words to, to handle, I'm going to give the word, and I'm going to give an illustration. The first thing in testing validity of interpretation has to do with what we call legitimacy. Is that a legitimate interpretation? And by legitimacy, I mean, is that the way the author usually speaks and his readers usually understand? Is that the way the author expresses himself? Can you find parallel passages by the same author to support that view? Is it legitimate? There's another verse that I would like for you to look at because it's a very important verse. It's found in the book of Revelation chapter three and verse 14. Revelation chapter three and verse 14. And unto the angel of the Church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this is a description of Jesus. And the words that come into focus here and about which there is dispute are the words, the beginning of the creation of God. And someone says, aha, I told you. There's only one God and Jesus is not God. Jesus is the first of the created beings. It says right here in Revelation 3 verse 14 that he's the beginning of the creation of God. Now, isn't that what it says? Now, if Jesus is the first of created beings, he's not God. It's a pretty important text. And we have to ask about legitimacy here. One of the things that will happen when this this occurs is that we will go to other translations and see if something happened in translation. When you look at the Revised Standard Version, it's the same as the King James. And the rather interesting thing is that when you look at the good news for modern man, it translates it this way who, Jesus, is the origin of all that God has created. I like that translation. He's the beginning of all creation in that he is the origin of all that God has created. But it isn't what I like and it isn't what you like. The question is, which one is right? We can't go to the Bible and say, I'll just pick out things I like. I'll just interpret the way I please. That's the thing that I've been pleading against, Let God speak. What does he say? So we're going to test out legitimacy. The writer of the book of Revelation is John. When John talks about Jesus, does he talk about him as being the firstborn of created beings? The answer is no. The Gospel of John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he doesn't ever talk about it that way. Then there's another word that we use in, in addition to legitimacy, and that's correspondence. Which interpretation best fits the sentence? Well, here, of course, either would fit the sentence and account for every word in the sentence, but it does not reflect the way the author usually writes. Now, it's interesting that when this author in the book of Revelation, John, uses this term beginning, it occurs in three other places. It occurs in Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. And uh, then it's used in 21, verse 6 and 7. I am alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. And then it's used in 22:13. And in 22:13, this beginning and end, which has been referred to God Almighty, refers to Jesus, and you know that He is God. Well, Jesus is the one who begins creation. That's the thing that we're trying to point out, and it's a very, very important thing. And we ask the question, too, about uh, generic appropriateness. We didn't have much chance to discuss this, but I said to you that you interpret epistles a little differently than you do parables and history different than you do poetry. And uh, one of these days, we're just going to have to talk a little bit more fully about each kind, but uh, we want to talk about appropriateness. Let me illustrate appropriateness by just pointing out what you can do to parables and what you shouldn't do to parables. Suppose we take this parable where this man goes and he needs help, and uh, we say, well, the friend that we go to at midnight is God. Then we go on to say, God sleeps with his children at night. God doesn't like his friends to bother him. God will answer our prayer if we keep on pestering him. Now, those things are right. That isn't what you do with a parable. Remember, we're going to try to find what the major thrust is. And the encouragement we had there was to come shamelessly and boldly in time of need, and he's going to help us. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. There's one other test that you and I can employ. It's a test called the test of coherence. When you and I find portions of Scripture that bother us and we have divergent interpretations, we say, what interpretation best fits the the entire context? Which best fits the thoughts and ideas and doctrines and truths that are taught by the author? Which best fits into the whole analogy of faith? Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Which view seems most worthy of God? And uh, when we're talking about coherence, let me give you just a couple of illustrations. Three of them. Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel, we're told about Gog and Magog. In the book of Revelation, we're told about Gog and Magog. And because God's word progressively reveals itself, we see that the things that Ezekiel saw are partially fulfilled in history, partially fulfilled before the millennium, and completely fulfilled at the end of the millennium. And so we interpret Gog and Magog in the book of Revelation not as a battle of Armageddon, but right where it is in the book, and we don't have any problem with Ezekiel. We say God is just giving us further insight. We also looked at this little type of Samson at Gaza, and we said, no, that doesn't fit in with the other teaching of scripture. We don't want to teach the resurrection of Jesus from that event. We'll teach it from other types, and we will teach it from the history that we have recorded, We'll teach it from the epistles, but not from uh, Judges chapter 16. We also had looked at Revelation 3.20. Behold, I have taken my stand at the door and I am knocking. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And you remember I applied that to God's desire to fellowship consciously with Christians, to share their lives. And as you read the rest of that letter, and as you read its conclusion, that it's written to the churches, he that hath an ear to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, you realize, that he's concerned about people he loves. As you begin the paragraph, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Look, I'm standing at the door. And even a church that had declared its independence, Jesus loves it. Jesus wants them to depend on him and fellowship with him. And we say, well, thank you, Lord. That helps me to understand it. You can understand the Bible. You can read the Bible, and you can discover meaning and significance in your life. You can test out your interpretations, and I trust that you with confidence will go ahead to do the work of God, to master the Word of God, and then to live it and to share it. May God bless you. And I hope that you will discover meaning and significance as you read your Bible, because we've spent a little bit of time pointing out some of the things that will be of help to you. Let us conclude with prayer. Father, we realize that there's a lot to learn and we've done this so quickly and so sketchily And yet we pray that you'll take these few thoughts that we've been able to share and that you'll enthuse your people and make them to realize that with the Holy Spirit in their hearts and your word in their hands that great things can be accomplished. Reveal yourself to them anew and afresh and make Bible reading a vital experience for each of us in our lives,
0: For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and Warren Faber's message on interpreting types that he presented at Gull Lake Bible Conference 1975. Dr. Warren Faber was Dean, Executive Vice President, and Professor Emeritus at Cornerstone University and a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us again next week when we bring you a series of messages on the Old Testament prophet Elijah that Howard Hendricks presented at Founders Week 1968. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.